0: Amen. You may be seated. This morning, uh, before we turn to God's Word, just one uh, brief announcement. Uh, After the service today, uh, we are having a... uh, a service fair, you might call it, over in the uh, uh, fellowship hall. It's called Serve 22. And uh, there are tables over in the fellowship hall from all the ministries in our church. And it's an opportunity to sign up to serve here at Christ Church, especially if you're new to the church or maybe you've been at the church for a while and you say, you know, I'd really like to find some new ways to serve. Uh, This is a great opportunity. A lot of the leaders of the committees and, and teams that uh, that oversee some of my our ministries are going to be over there. And even if you're already serving in some ways, you can go over there. I think they have some snacks and they're giving out stuff at each of the tables to try to attract you to their ministries. But uh, make sure, uh, and how you get there is you go out that back door, take a left, And then when you get almost to the basketball court, you'll go up some stairs to your left as well, and that'll take you into the the fellowship hall, and you can uh, just see what God is doing here at Christ Church. Uh, So exciting morning, and hope you can make it over there. I'll try to remind you at the end of the service as well. So uh, we are uh, continuing our study through the Gospel of Mark this morning. We're in Mark chapter 1, looking at verses 21 to 28. This is the word of the Lord. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. They were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commanded even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. The grass withers. And the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we uh, thank you for your, your word that you've pre- uh, preserved for us these accounts of what Jesus did and what he said. And uh, we long to know him more deeply. And we long to experience his power in our lives that he might work through us. So um, send your Holy Spirit. Help us to understand these words. And would you take the truth of them and, and and press them into our hearts. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, today uh, we're looking at a really important topic, I think, for our uh, generation. I'm going to spend actually a little longer introduction than usual on it. And our topic is the authoritative teaching of Jesus, And I think there are many people in our day, even that title, authoritative teaching, can tend to stir suspicion in us. Because people you know, who have authority over us and teach with authority, you know, they can't be questioned. And we're afraid that someone who has authority over us is going to get control of us. Because we can't question what they tell us to do. And in fact, one of the great uh, hallmarks of modernity, the modern age, is a suspicion of authority. There's a suspicion of tradition, a suspicion of the Bible, a suspicion of the church, suspicion of institutions. There's a suspicion of anyone who has power or influence in the world, and it, over the last two years, that suspicion has just heightened. There, uh, you know, increasingly, there's a suspicion about the institutions in our society, about the government, about uh, you know the the uh, medical establishment, of universities, of the media. We. Do not trust authorities. And this modern outlook has been the outworking of uh, Rene uh, Descartes' famous saying where he said, I think, uh, therefore I am. And he was saying basically the only thing that I can really trust in is my own mind, my own reasoning. And in our day, we have expanded Descartes saying, I think, therefore I am, to be, you know, Descartes was just like, well, I trust my own reason. If you can give me a proof, then I'll believe it. But we've expanded it to be everything about our inner life is really what has authority. It's not just my reason, but it's my emotions and my intuitions and my sexual impulses. And uh, the whole complex of my inner life has been given a godlike authority, and the defining quality of the modern world is this. I must follow my own heart and mind no matter what anyone else says. And uh, it's gone to such an extent that it is intelligible in our culture now to say that even if your body says that you are a boy, if your inner life says that you're a girl, the inner life has the authority over your body. If your inner life says you're a girl, then you're a girl. And that's an, it's amazing that the inner life has more authority than science or, or the medical community or the religious traditions of all the world. The inner life has more authority than uh, the family structures that we come into, um, more authority than the Bible itself. The inner life must be obeyed. And so how does the authority of Jesus contrasts with uh, the modern authority of the inner life. Well, a couple things to say about that. On the one hand, uh, the Bible is clear, is whatever we do, do not make the inner life the supreme authority in your life. Jeremiah tells us that the heart is deceitful above all things, and uh, Proverbs tells us that the fool trusts in his own mind. And if we have not come to to have a suspicion about our own intuitions or even our own reasoning or our emotions or our sexual impulses, then we haven't even learned basically the first step of wisdom is to have a distrust of our own inner life. And uh, and our culture is currently experiencing the consequences of this worldview. Without a loving and good authority that's outside of our emotions, we will not have community, Communities only form through authority. All communities need authority to hold them together. We will uh, will not have purpose in our lives. The only way that you're going to have purpose in meaning of your life, the definition of having a purpose is living for something beyond yourself, beyond your inner life. And also, we will not change and mature if nothing can challenge our inner life, our emotions, our thinking, our intuitions. All of these things involve resisting your emotions. And that is why our culture is so chronically anxious. We don't have a loving authority to give guardrails to the craziness of our inner lives. And so on the one hand, the Bible is is radically opposed to the foolishness of our age. But also, uh, the Bible shares some of the suspicion that the modern world has towards authorities. Actually, if you look at Jesus' teaching, many of his harshest critiques are towards the religious authorities in his day, the institutions in his day. And actually, we'll see some of that even in this passage. But to trade the authority of human institutions for, you know, frail human institutions for the authority of my inner life is just to trade one uh, um, flawed authority for another. The Bible says that we need God himself to come and speak to us. And the word authority is closely tied to the word author. We need the author of our lives, the author of this world, to come and give us meaning and give us direction. And that's why in this passage we read in verse 27 that it says, And they were all amazed, so they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this a new teaching with authority, at last, the author himself has come into this little synagogue and is speaking and is teaching. And so, if there's one thing our crazy culture needs right now, it is the authoritative teaching of Jesus. And so, this morning, I'd like to talk about how the authority of Jesus uh, talk, talk about the authority of Jesus by answering three questions for us from Mark chapter one, and this is what they are. Where can we learn Jesus' authoritative teaching? How should we respond to his teaching? And, uh, and then how does it change us? Where can we learn Jesus' authoritative teaching? How should we then respond to it when we hear it? And then how does it change us? Three important questions for our generation. So first question from Mark chapter one. Where can we learn Jesus' authoritative teaching? And The answer to that question is two paradoxical answers, okay? So where can we learn his teaching? Well, the first answer that we see in this passage is that Jesus' authoritative teaching is learned within the church. And you see that in verse 21, how it says, And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, Jesus entered the synagogue and was teaching, Now, the synagogue is basically the the precursor to the church. That's where churches really came from. You know, before Jesus came, all around the Mediterranean world, Jews uh, gathered in cities, in gatherings just like this, and they would have a rabbi who would teach them from the scriptures, and they would worship God together. And this was for people who couldn't travel to Jerusalem to worship. So they had little meetings like this, and all the early churches were basically splinters off from the synagogue. And it's important to recognize in this passage that Jesus is in the synagogue. And actually, if you go to Luke chapter 4, it tells us this was his custom, that every Sabbath day he went among God's people and worshipped with them. And when he gave his authoritative teaching, it was in the context of the church. Now, I mentioned that, you know, I just mentioned that Jesus was critical of the religious leaders in his day. But that did not cause him to abandon the institutional structure of the church. And you know, I always think about those poor rabbis who had Jesus sitting in their congregation. You know, we have really smart people in our congregation, and I always have to think about, oh, what's, am I going to say something wrong? And is someone going to be like, you know, that's not quite right? Imagine you had the Son of God every Lord's day sitting in your church, being, and, and what did Jesus think? I and mean, he'd be like, you know, that's, he's a little off on this sermon, not quite right. And, uh, but that's amazing to me. He, saw the flaws and the imperfection of the church better than anyone, and that he was there every Sabbath. And you won't find the authoritative teaching of Jesus anywhere else. And many Christians in our day are, are saying things like, I, I love Jesus, but I've given up on the church. And it's true. There are, there are terrible sins that have happened in the church, and that's, that may have happened uh, to some of you, and it, and it can be understandable when people say... It's hard to gather with a group of sinners like this. But if you give up on the church, where else are you going to go? How else are you going to have the authoritative teaching of Jesus in your life without the church? Because if it's not with the church, then it's just you and your Bible. And if you don't think that you're going to bring your own inner life and impose it on the Bible, if no one else is there to correct it or to challenge you with the church, you're just going to be following yourself. And that's why every week at the end of our sermon... We say together what we believe and we say the words of the Apostles' Creed. And one of the lines of the Apostles' Creed says, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. And the Catholic Church means there that, you know, the global church and throughout all time, the universal church. But it is an article of faith to say, I believe in this. Because Jesus has chosen this church and is flawed as flawed and imperfect as it is, I believe that this is where Jesus is, and if I want his deep teaching deep in my life, there is nowhere else where I will find it except in a community like this. And so the first answer to where is Jesus' authoritative teaching, it's learned in the church. And yet, the Bible also recognizes the limits of the church's authority. And so the second answer to that is that Jesus' authoritative teaching has more authority than the pastors in the church. And you see that there in verse 22 where it says, And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Now, who are the scribes? The scribes are the Bible, you know, the people who study the Bible all week, and they study the church tradition, and they study the theology, and they teach it to God's people. These are the implications of what God's Word is saying. And it's not a diss on being a scribe to say that they don't have as much authority as Jesus. You know, Jesus said about Moses, I know that Moses told you this, but I tell you this. I gave Moses his authority, and I have more authority than him. I can say something different than him if I want to. I can't say, I know Moses said this, but Nate says this. No, I can't say that. I, I can't say, I know Jesus said this, but I can't, I can't say that. I don't, the, the authority of the church is in God's word. It's derived from the word itself. And I only have any authority if I'm speaking God's word. Our pastors and our elders only have authority if they're speaking God's word. And so the authority of the church is a secondary authority. And so, you know, for example, our church uses the, the Westminster Confession of Faith. It's a, it's a beautiful document written in the 1640s in England. It's just basically a summary of what the Bible teaches. And we say, well, you, you know, if you're going to be an elder, a pastor, a deacon in our church, you have to subscribe to the Westminster Confession of Faith. But if you go to the Westminster Confession of Faith and read chapter 1, you know what it says in there? Westminster the supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined and all decrees of councils opinions of ancient writers doctrines of men and private spirits spirits are to be examined and in whose sentence we are to rest can be no other but the holy spirit speaking in the scripture westminster starts in chapter 1 by saying this document is a secondary authority there is only one authority And so when we ask, where can we learn Jesus' authoritative teaching? It's in God's word alone. It's where we meet Christ himself. The word of Christ, the spirit of Christ, and the scripture of Christ all speak with one authoritative voice. And so again, even when you look in in the Gospel of Luke, when Jesus goes into the synagogue and he starts teaching in the synagogue, even Jesus opens the Bible to Isaiah and says, this is what Isaiah says. And so that means that you all as a congregation... The Bible says you are the priesthood of all believers. And so you can't just simply say, well, you know, I believe whatever the, the pastor, or the elders say. You have to be engaged. you got to ser- follow along with the sermon and watch. So when I say, look at verse 23, you got to follow along and say, let's see if that's what verse 23 says. You have to be discerning. So, you're, so the church is under an authority, but it's discerning to say, actually, we know that there's only one authority. It is Christ himself speaking. By his spirit and through his word. And so where can we learn Jesus' authoritative teaching? It's this paradox of that that teaching is only found in the church. And yet its authority is greater than the church itself. Okay? But that leads to our second question, which is this. How should we respond then to Jesus' authoritative teaching? How should we respond to it? And... A couple answers from this passage. Okay, the first answer is it is not enough to simply know Jesus' teaching. It's not just about your intellect and it's about knowledge. And you see that, you'll notice there in verse 23 how it says, And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. The Holy One of God. And this is uh, amazing that in the Gospel of Mark, after John the Baptist, the first person to declare who Jesus is is a demon. And uh, he says specifically, I know who you are. The demon has knowledge. And the demon's right. He says, You're the Holy One of God. The demon knows Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Son of God. He knows that uh, Jesus has authority and power to destroy him. But the demon does not love or worship or obey Jesus. And this is one of the most important verses in the Bible in understanding knowledge. It is possible to have good doctrine, good teaching, like this demon. Everything you say about the Bible is true. But to not really know God to not really walk with Christ and to trust in him. And there are two kinds of people who can have a temptation to fall into this category. So the first kind of person is, our, our, our church is a Presbyterian and Reformed church. And in our tradition, there's a lot of emphasis on knowledge. You know, you're reading books and using big theological words. And there's definitely a temptation to think that your relationship to Jesus is about how, theo- how much theology you know. But it is possible To be able to win all kinds of debates about theology and not really know Christ. Or even not make that the goal of your spiritual life is that I want to know God more. I want to know Christ's comfort in my life more. I want to trust in his promises. I want to walk with him. I want to sense when he is leading me. I want his word to shape how I relate to people. That's a totally different thing than I know all the right theological answers. And so this demon knew all the right theological answers. Didn't love or worship or walk with Jesus. Okay, so the first kind of person is kind of Reformed, Presbyterian, know-it-all. The second kind of person can be who knows everything but does not trust is the the deconstructing Christian. And if you don't know that expression, a deconstructing uh, Christian is someone who has grown up in the church. It's often evangelical churches right now in our Cultural moment, who had all these assumptions about God and the Bible and and Christianity, and they're tearing down all of these. I had all these things that I knew about God, and I'm realizing I need to tear them all down. I need to kind of unlearn them. They're deconstructing what they what they had thought before. And maybe some of you would say, Yeah, I'm going through that process. I'm deconstructing, unlearning all these things that I learned growing up. And actually, all of us to varying degrees need to deconstruct things that maybe we were raised with or that we've learned. We've all had things that are not true about God that we've learned, and they need to be torn down. But there's a very significant movement in our generation of Christians who've grown up in the church and are suffering from serious doubts about the faith. And, and, you know, the New Testament is very tender towards those who doubt. It says, uh, Jude says, have mercy on those who doubt. We should listen to and talk to people who are doubting. They need conversation partners and people that aren't doubting, that feel strong in their, in their faith. But it's common for someone to say, I've grown up in the church. I've heard all the answers. I know it all. I grew up having all these conversations and I can't go along with those answers anymore. And often the heart of deconstruction is one of distrust. And it's distrust that not just towards church leaders. There are church leaders in churches that should not be trusted. But it extends even to the Bible itself. I'm not even, I don't trust God's word. I don't trust God. And so for this person, again, they have knowledge. But they are struggling with a heart of trust. And, you know, all of us probably have variations on both of these people uh, within us. But the reformed know-it-all and the deconstructing person are both ultimately trusting in their own minds. They're not trusting in the person of Jesus. That's what it means to be a person of faith. That's what it means to have Jesus' authoritative teaching in your life, is to have a person in your life that you know and trust. But uh, So this means that the first thing about our response is that it's not enough to simply have the intellectual knowledge about Jesus' teaching. And so the second answer about our response is that we must be changed. By Jesus' words. It's not enough to have the intellectual knowledge. We must be changed by his words. Jesus' words and his teaching have power. And the only words we hear from Jesus in this passage are what's called a speech act. And a speech act is when uh, you say something that not only communicates information, but it it does something. It changes the world. So, for example, our worship pastor, uh, Matt Boffy, just got married Um, on New Year's Eve and uh, to his new bride, Alex. And at their wedding, when Matt was saying his vows uh, to Alex, he said, I, Matt, uh, take you, Alex, to be my wedded wife. And as soon as he said those words, you know, tears just poured out of Alex's eyes as she heard Matt's vows. And they said these vows to one another. When he says those things, it's not just information. He's doing something. The world is being transformed. Their lives are being transformed. He came into that ceremony, a single man is leaving a married man. She came in, single, a single woman is leaving a, a married woman. They are being transformed by those words. It's a speech act that does something. And in the same way, Jesus' authoritative teaching is not just helpful information. It has a power to act upon us and to change us. And in this passage, Jesus a man who's um, possessed by a demon, And it says in verse 25, but Jesus rebuked him saying, be silent and come out of him. And this is more than a a command. It's not like the demon could have said, well, I'm going to think about it. Maybe I'll just stay in the man. I don't want to come out. No, Jesus, I'm going to stay in here. He didn't have that option. Look at what happens in verse 26. It says, and the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. Jesus' words exercise the demon. He didn't have a magical technique it was his words had power to them. And this is the difference between Jesus teaching and many of the self-help gurus that are in our culture. A self-help guru will, you know, help you make a plan to lose some weight and to set goals for yourself and help you to start thinking po- positively, but really it's all up to you. You have to do the change. But Jesus' teaching is a truth that when you hear it and receive it into you, it has a power to transform you. It transforms you at a very deep level, at a subconscious levels. It changes what you love and what you worship and what you're devoted to you and how you think. You are not the one doing the work. The teaching does the work. And I know that some of you may be wondering about uh, the demon possession and the exorcism and how are we supposed to think about Demon possession and exorcism. And to be honest, I I don't really know. I'm not sure that I've, I don't think I've met a demon-possessed person before. I've not encountered that in my ministry. But I think at least uh, one message for us is that Jesus' authority was able to give freedom to a man who was enslaved to evil. evil. This man could not save himself. He could not free himself. He could not change himself. But the word of Jesus could. That's what an authority can do. And the Bible gives us a picture that good and evil are not like these equal opposites that are in a cosmic war against one another. It is God is the sovereign over good and evil. He's the judge over good and evil. And Jesus can command the good. He can also command a demon. And the demon has to obey him because he is the supreme authority. And you might think, oh, you know, probably in the ancient world, there were all kinds of people that were going around exercising demons all the time. That's really not true. Actually, there was a a guy who did a Ph.D. dissertation on Uh, what record do we have of people doing exorcisms in the ancient world? And actually, there's very few. And this is what the summary of his findings was. The only exorcistic figure in the extant literature to whom a number of exorcism stories are ascribed. So the only person who's doing multiple exorcisms like this and that are related in detail is the biblical figure of Jesus of Nazareth. What Jesus is doing in this passage is a unique authority. There is no one like him. And so even though we tend to be suspicious of authority, we need authority in our lives. It's it's a necessity. We long for it. And if we're going to have community, we need authority. If we're going to have a purpose bigger than ourselves, we need authority. And if we're going to have safety and protection in our lives, we need a safe and strong and good and loving authority around us. And so what we've seen so far is where can we learn Jesus' authoritative teaching? It's taught only in the church is where we can learn it deeply. But his authority is even greater than the church and it's above the pastors and the leaders and the elders within the church. And so how should we receive that teaching? It's not enough to simply know it intellectually. It must change us and we have to receive it with faith and trust. Trust in the person of Jesus. And so that leads to our our final question. So when we've received it, how does it change us? What, is, what does that change look like in our lives? And what's interesting about this passage is Jesus has just exercised a demon from this man, and yet the change that we read about isn't about the man. It's about all the people who are watching it. Everyone else in the synagogue was like, oh, the man came in with an unclean spirit, and Jesus cast out the unclean spirit. And you see in this passage how it impacted them was they were amazed a changed life is amazed you see that in verse 27 and they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves saying what is this a new teaching with authority he commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him and you know being amazed can mean kind of a fear that wow, this alien power has just come into our synagogue and it you know demons obey what he says and it's so strange and so foreign. But I also think that amazement is really one of the essential elements of joy. You know, the people who are most joyful are the people who are amazed the most. They're amazed at people, at all kinds of people. They're amazed at the natural world. They're amazed at the Bible. They're amazed at what Jesus does and how God is working in, in, in his life. Their eyes are wide open to the wonders of the world. And above all, they're amazed at the Son of God who has walked among us to save us. A changed life is an amazed life. And when you're amazed by something, you know, another thing that kind of goes with being amazed is mystery. You're like, what is this? Wow, this is so strange. And and I love what it says about the people in this passage, that they questioned among themselves saying, what is this? I feel like that's a real picture of what we're doing we've encountered the mystery of who Christ is and we're questioning with each other. We're, you know, we read the Bible together and we study. And we're like, what does this mean? How does it apply to our lives? How do I think about this? And those kind of conversations about questioning, what does this mean for our lives? I think it's one of the great pleasures of life is to talk about God and the deep mysteries of why do we even exist and what is God doing in the world? And, you know, in our church, one of the main things we do, you know, we meet here on Sunday morning and one of the main ways that we gather together Outside of Sunday mornings, we have these discipleship groups. And that's basically what those groups are, is we're doing what they did, is small groups of people looking at God's word and saying, what does this mean? How, do we, how are we supposed to understand this? And their amazement caused them not just to talk to one another about it, but then it, it, they go, it says in verse 28, and at once his fame spread everywhere throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. The people in this church were amazed and they went out into the whole region. And this only makes sense because that's what amazed people do. When you're filled with wonder at something, you want to talk about it. Being amazed both makes you humble, but it also gives you an energy and a life. And so friends, I invite you today to be amazed at the authority of Jesus alongside these synagogue worshipers in Galilee. Within the weak and broken and imperfect church, Jesus' authoritative teaching was there. He was pleased to be present in the church then. He is pleased to be present in the church now. But his teaching is not just an intellectual exercise. His authoritative teaching has power. It has a power that works in you and can free you from even the enslavement to evil and darkness. And when it comes into your life, it is so beautiful, the only response is amazement. He is a better authority than our emotions. We need an authority in our life. Jesus is a better authority. So we will spend our whole lives asking that question. What is this? A new teaching with authority. May we never grow out of asking that question. And may he ever show us new depths to its answers. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we uh, thank you for your word that speaks to us with authority unlike any human being on this planet. And Lord, we have uh, sensed its, its power. Lord, we long that um, your words would not just be uh, intellectual exercises for us and knowing the right theology, but your word would have a power that Um, makes us people who trust you and love you and love other people, that we would be wise, that we would become like Jesus. Lord, we long to be like him. May your Holy Spirit form his life in us. May we treasure your word always. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.